Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Reformed Podmatics. I am Pastor Mark. And I'm Pastor Zach. And we thank you for joining us for a special episode of the podcast this week, where we will give some thoughts and response to a book that is taking not just the evangelical church world by storm, but many people are noticing it outside the church as well, called Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Cobes Dumay. I think I don't know if I got her name right exactly, but uh, the book is as recently released, and um, it is uh, written by a woman who is a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University, um, and uh, sort of comes out of our stream of Christianity uh, and has a lot of experience with the same in the same circles that we do. And it's kind of exciting whenever this happens where a Christian reformed person makes a splash in (laughs) the broader culture that gets a lot of attention in our Christian reformed churches. And so, um, Zach and I, and two other pastors read this book as part of a little book club that we have and, uh, have a lot of thoughts to share. And, in order to do this well, we thought we uh, should bring in a, another authority on the matter and uh, somebody who um, who we know is uh, very thoughtful about these types of things. And so that is Ron Vandermolen Sr., who is joining us here. Uh, you might say in studio. It's really in Zach's office. Um, but uh, Ron, uh, thank you for joining us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a retired history professor. I uh, started teaching in a Christian high school, taught for a couple of years at uh, Calvin, which was then college, taught a year of religion at uh, Michigan State, I was working my doctorate, hmm. and then came to Stanislaus uh, State University in 1969, and I retired about 15 years ago. My field is basically uh, 16th century, England especially, and uh, Puritan, Puritan, but uh, when you get in a state university, a big history department, um, when people die, you have to take over their courses. <laughs> <laughs> so I did I have to add a few things, but uh, that's basically it. I just taught history. And how was it that you got into 16th century England? That's yeah. an interesting field of history to get into. For sure. Uh, basically, I was interested in the Reformation hmm. and... The, the extreme documentation is available at in uh, especially English history. Mm. And I had a professor for my master's degree at DePaul who was a real stickler and he was a he published a lot of documents, mm. political documents. and that's how I really got hooked on English history. Paul Hughes was his name, and he published a lot of uh, documentary uh, evidence. and so that's how I got into it. Mm. Then I was interested in religion, religious history. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, and so uh, Ron is a member of a nearby Christian Reformed Church. His uh, son and some grandsons of his are members at our church. And so we have a a decent amount of interaction, um, seeing him at basketball games and things like that. (laughs) And um, and so. I became aware of, of Ron's enthusiastic support for the book. I, I don't know exactly how, but... Um, about a year ago, I think through an email in yeah, response maybe. to one of our podcast maybe. episodes. Maybe, I think I, so, yeah. I think that's when we first heard the recommendation. And and so uh, I just thought he would be a good guy to join us for this conversation. And so uh, for those who have not read the book Jesus and John Wayne, um, you might be a little bit curious about what this book is about. And so... Um, yeah, if Zach. you're living under a rock and you don't know about this book. <laughs> yeah, if you're listening to a podcast called Reform Podmatics, you've probably heard of Jesus and John Wayne. But yeah. in case you have not actually sat down to, to mine its pages, Zach, how would you summarize the thesis of the book? So I think there's actually there's, there's a lot of different things that she's trying to do in the book. And there's a lot of uh, sort of a multi-layered book in that sense in terms of her, her aim. But I think the main aim... Um, at least on the surface, is to explain how evangelicals were rallied uh, and galvanized into voting for a pretty unchristian man in 2016 by the name of Donald Trump. Uh, and so for many people, this seemed as a a great uh, shift away from what, the, what we saw in the 90s with Clinton, where mm. uh evangelicals bemoaned very loudly Clinton's lack of morality or supposed lack of morality. Um, And they sort of took their high horse and said, this man's not fit for office. And then about 20 years later, all of a sudden we have a man uh, who can't help but say so many obscene things, profane things, and how there was unstopped, un, 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 unquitting support for this man. Uh, even when different uh, Access Hollywood tapes mm-hmm. came out about the famous saying, and I won't repeat it here, but uh, there was it was quick. Evangelicals were quick to defend him and to stay at his side. And so I think what the book aims to do in that sense is to explain how evangelicals who so often and so for so long fought for morality and for virtue came to be behind a man who didn't didn't live any of that out himself yeah the subtitle of the book is how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation so um it's a it's a it's a history it's really uh a lot of history that kind of really picks up in about the 1920s and 30s and details the development of what I would probably call evangelical culture, um, focusing a little bit less on evangelical theology, um, although obviously that intertwines in various places, but more on the development of how, who is an evangelical, what sorts of values does that person mm-hmm. have, and then the 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 apex is basically that evangelical supported Donald Trump not mm-hmm. in spite of their culture. Right. But because of, particularly, she would lay the blame at militarism, um, mm-hmm. patriarchy, mm-hmm. and uh, that this, these kind of cultural values. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how would you describe, I would, is that a fair description of the book? Yeah, uh, I think that's a fair description. Um, she emphasizes the masculinity, mm-hmm. warrior mm-hmm. Uh, mentality. 
but the underlying themes are around patriarchy and mm-hmm. yeah I, I think patriarchy is a big thing yeah um, and militarism so it's militaristic mili- patriarchy mili- right militaristic yeah yeah, uh, yeah that, that's what she's basically at underneath all of the uh, underneath all of the details I mean it's mm-hmm. extremely detailed yeah and all kinds of people are discussed mm-hmm. Um, but that's a difficult history to do. Hmm. I mean, to my point of view, anyway, it's current, hmm. it's modern, <laughs> and you have to rely on uh, evidence that uh, lots of times uh, historians would not really think was very good. Hmm. But that's what you, all you have. That's what you have to work with. Hmm. But I'm sort of old-fashioned in that way, I guess. <laughs> yeah, there's not a whole lot of secondary material on 20th century evangelicalism. <laughs> With the best we can do is really read primary yep. sources. Go, and many and, of them are still living, of and course. judgments. And ministries are still happening. And, and, and so I, I think Ron raises a good point there that there is a lot of uh, are a lot of stories. It's not as though oh, yeah. Um, yeah. there's just like three people who were yeah. the, the monolithic example of right. the 50s and 60s and then 70s and 80s and then here we are today. Um, she does, I, w- I want to say every three or four pages, there's probably a new mm-hmm. example of, um, there are the big ones. There is James Dobson, of course, and mm-hmm. uh, obviously the title of the book is Jesus and John Wayne. And so <laughs> um, there's, there's a good amount spent on John Wayne, um, I want to say Ronald Reagan probably has some some thrown in there, yeah. if, if I recall correctly. Um, but uh, overall, uh, there are the the big names, but but there's I'd say probably more attention given to um, some of the secondary players who are actually very influential in certain contexts, hmm. um, and uh, who Cobes Dumay argues are uh, representative of the modern evangelical in various ways. So yeah. um, that's, I think that's generally what it's about. Um, <laughs> it, it ends on a fairly dire note that, um, that there's basically a lot of deconstructing to do. And I think that she, based on the interview that I watched um, on the Unbelievable podcast yesterday and just on how the book concludes, I think the, the, where it's leading to is an encouragement to continue the work of deconstruction mm-hmm. and say, we've got to pull down this uh, patriarchal system that has been so toxic and, uh, and so, uh, so bad for a lot of people um, mm-hmm. and bad for the name of Christ in some ways, she would argue. Um, and so let's continue that work. Zach, you just opened to I think, the final page. of the <laughs> Yeah, book. it was like, it was something that I wanted to bring up in this episode. We'll ruin was, the end for the person who hasn't read it. Yeah, the, the <laughs> final two sentences of the book. She says, appreciating how this ideology, this sort of patriarchal, complementarian ideology, militaristic ideology, appreciating how this ideology developed over time is also essential for those who wish to dismantle it. What was once done might also be undone. And so this is not just a historical telling of how evangelicals voted for Trump and how things developed over the past century um, in the evangelical world, but it's also wanting to shine a spotlight on the problems within it Mm -hmm. so that they may be dismantled and overturned. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there is an angle here. Like all good history, there's an angle. There's, There's a desire of the author to show 
what, what, what has gone wrong and how we can right that wrong. And so I think that that's where we'll get into the weeds mm-hmm. in this episode is, do we agree with her conclusions, with her, with her diagnosis, and therefore her sort of subtly yeah. sprinkled in prognosis of where we should go from here uh, to improve the health of the church globally and particularly in America. Yeah, um, and particularly maybe the white evangelical church. Yeah. Uh, so what what did we enjoy or find helpful about the book? Let's start with some mm. of the positives, some of the good learning that we've done. Ron, why don't you, you could uh, maybe start with that one. Well, I, I enjoyed her going through the history, especially up till recent, very recent, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. because I recall things from the book, which I've never paid much attention to, although I was appropriately cynical about uh, <laughs> late gray planet Earth and mm. um, so things like that. Um, and uh, I was I was told by someone else that hey that that chapter on women was really good. Uh, I said, was it like that? She she said, yeah, it was like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the woman's place was being uh, well kept, mm-hmm. well dressed, very loving, mm-hmm. and put up with this high testosterone guy who she was was and that was her job in life mm-hmm. and. Uh, so, uh, so a very precise prescription for the woman's role. Right. There was yeah. a book, and all uh, women in our churches were all reading that hmm. that thing, and uh, <laughs> so that was the prescription. And this prescription that carries out through the book itself yeah, and various various individuals. So I I like the, the way that she went through, through all these people. She was not making just generalizations but she was supporting it with the names of the people and sometimes newspaper articles about them which is not the best source but then books by them and uh, statements by them mm-hmm. which if you look back at them are often very embarrassing or should mm-hmm. be embarrassing mm-hmm. uh, but uh, so what I enjoyed about the book is going through a rather current type topic with a lot of evidence and naming names and putting things in perspective that, to tell you the truth, I never thought about very much. Mm-hmm. I was more interested in theology, you know, hear, seeing what our theologians had to say mm-hmm. or what uh, mm-hmm. what I could teach in history or dealing with all sorts of other things. <laughs> yeah. What about, what about you? you can go ahead, Mark. What I appreciated, um, I think she rightly calls out the gullibility of evangelicals. So mm-hmm. um, I think your example, Ron, of... Um, men and women looking to extra biblical sources for a lot of what uh, James would call worldly wisdom that is not wisdom at all Um, and often forgetting the biblical requirement of say uh, what it means to be a man or a woman um, and going with a sort of hyper masculine version of that um, like reading Wild at Heart, she spends a lot of time on that at, that book by John Eldridge that came out in the early two thousands, mm-hmm. um, and she even mentioned it again in the in the interview that I saw yesterday. How it sold four million copies, and and it is a problem when people attach their the wagon of their life to a figurehead, a celebrity. Um, mm-hmm. um, I'm not quite so convinced that that 
is John Wayne. I, I, she sort of makes the argument that John Wayne is kind of the paragon of masculinity. Maybe that was the case a long time ago. It certainly um, was. Yeah. Uh, and and I, when she quotes some of the more recent people, it seems like they were carrying on with it. Right. Yeah. yeah uh, that was interesting to me as well. But John Wayne was the man. <laughs> the boss, cowboy. They call him the boss or the something? Co- like uh, the or, cowboy. Yeah. Yeah. Who so, uh, could man. correct all deal, all problems. Uh, and so <laughs> anyways, um, I, what I did appreciate, though, was the, the tendency of evangelicals or her calling out the tendency of evangelicals to uh, gullib- like submit to authority that is really outside of scripture. Um, she talks a fair amount about James Dobson, and I appreciate some of what James Dobson has to say, but I do agree that kind of the supra-biblical authority of James Dobson um, is a real thing, probably among a lot of evangelicals, that they would be more likely to listen to him than just sit and read their Bible and Titus chapters one and two, for example, that talk a little bit about the functioning of the church and how men and women relate to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, they would prefer the very precise prescriptions of Dobson for how the dad should act, the mom should act, and that's just going to be unhelpful at a certain point um, mm. and maybe even destructive. Uh, um so I, I don't put all of that at the feet of Dobson, but I think that is an example where uh, hero worship mm-hmm. in the church is uh, has, has led to some really bad places. Yeah. On that point, she has some interesting st- statements. I forget where in the book, but she does talk about uh, the sort of the kitschiness of Christian bookstores and how mm-hmm. Christians are just so prone to buying, you know, like the God and God's Patriot Bible and the, yeah. the Bible with the camouflage and the, you know, the, uh, what's the duck dynasty, all their yeah. like branding stuff. Christians are just sort of buying this stuff. Yeah. And so it shows you sort of the consumeristic side, uh, of, of evangelicalism. I, I also appreciated like you, Ron, sort of the walk down memory lane. It felt like for me, just like a few weeks ago, I was back home and I went, was going through some old boxes at my mom's house and I found my old yearbooks. And so I was going through these yearbooks from sixth grade and from freshman year of high school and it was very nostalgic and it was sort of fun. Uh, that's how this book felt for me as I was reading uh, about the parts that I grew up in in the nineties. I was born in 1990. And so I grew up in the middle <laughs> of the Thomas Keepers thing. <laughs> Yeah, I remember all the the Wow hits CDs that I would get and the Christian concerts that we'd go to, and I can remember going to, as even as a young child to uh, this one artist named Jana Elira who had some children's Christian songs mm-hmm. about jumping into the light and all of these things, and it was all the dance moves you had to learn. I grew up in the middle of all of that, and so that that. W- that sort of stuff was just enjoyable about the book. It was fun seeing like, oh yeah, I remember listening to James Dobson on my way to school every morning with my dad. And um, I remember all the the Clinton stuff, hearing from, hearing it from my, my parents at the dinner table. I remember watching on TV with my with my parents um, about what was going on with, with Bill Clinton. Um, and so it was, in that sense, it was just, interesting to look back at old memories that I, that I had from a child that I had sort of forgotten about. Um, I do think also that this, this book tells a compelling story about cultural evangelicalism and in large, in large ways it's on point. It, it, it successfully, 
uh, articulates problems that are embedded in, in evangelicalism. And so while I didn't always feel that it was, uh, I was firmly in her sights, and this is something we can get into, I didn't feel like I was compelled to change my position on much of anything uh, theologically. I do think she made a good critique of broad cultural evangelicalism. Um, so if you're somebody who listens almost religiously to James Dobson or Franklin Graham or Robert Jeffress, this book will be a bullseye or it should be a bullseye right between the eyes for you. It should, you should feel the weight of this book. Um, but being that that's not something that I've ever been into, uh, at least in my adulthood, <laughs> uh, it didn't feel like it really hit me. But I, I do think she successfully um, draws down or sort of judgment. She she right, rightly condemns that side of evangelicalism. Um, and so I, I thought yeah. the book had some merit in that regard for sure. Yeah, it recognizes a lot of real problems that uh, certainly the Bible recognizes our, our issues, um, power, abuses of power, injustice, um, yeah. manipulation, dishonesty, um, and the pass that many evangelical people will give, uh, like sort of my earlier comment, if they're worshiping the hero, hmm. if that hero is uh, laying the golden egg, you know, every, uh, like <laughs> seemingly make it very popular, like again, think of the rise and fall of Mars Hill, that podcast that's out right now. Hmm. Um, if that person is uh, successful, quote unquote successful, then we've got to just forget about some questions of theology or abuses of power because there's this really good thing that we can't ruin right mm. now. I think she gives a lot of good examples where that is was really destructive. And especially relevant to us, I would think, yeah. is that so yeah. many of those people are called reformed mm-hmm. and they're doing all sorts of like Mars Hill type things yeah. or you know, you can name various people who are, we say, that's reformed? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, where is that coming from? Because in my train, my education, that was not reformed at all. Sure. It was more biblical emphasis and biblical analysis and mm-hmm. theological stuff. Whereas these people get into all sorts of other things. Yeah, it's pop reformed, you could say. Pop reformed. Pop reformed. Yeah, well, I guess I would say that. That would be charitable, probably. <laughs> A charitable way of putting it. Um, pop Calvinist. Or yeah. pornographic reformed. <laughs> so how, how would, uh, how, what else would you say you appreciated, Ron? Any other things stand out to you for? Well, just positives. things that how how things got defined which i never had paid attention to i never worried about complementarians mm-hmm. uh, you know and then when it became an ism i really i didn't even know that, that wasn't worried about that mm-hmm. uh, yeah so there were things like that uh and the descriptions of the development of uh things like the uh, focus on uh Christianity at the Air Force Academy. Mm-hmm. Um, that chapter was kind of interesting. I know yeah. it's got dinged by some scholars or some, by some reviewers. Mm. Um, just a story. When you get into the negative stuff, uh, I, 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 well, we don't get to that yet, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's okay. It, it tends to uh, be what I wouldn't consider. Uh, High, heavy, heavy history. 
and the mm. book was not meant to that. Mm. She said that's more the pop me- history. The me- book was meant yeah. for pop history, and yeah. so that's where I. I'm not pop history guy. <laughs> <laughs> I do think she did a good job of doing her research. It's quite clear looking at the bibliography how, how many notes she has, how many references she has. She she has marshaled a lot of evidence throughout this book. Um, and so mm-hmm. it, it, it can be a little heady. It's kind of a long, drawn-out case. It's not, um, it's not flimsy. It's not uh, a, you know, a, a... Yeah, it's not pop history in the sense of, like, a hot take. Yeah, correct. No, like it's, it's very like thought it's out. She's not walking on yeah. thin ice. She is. Yeah. She's walking on a lot of solid evidence that she's, that she's putting forth. Yeah. Um, and so in that regard, I think that's another strength of the book. Um, and I, I, like you said, the, the militarism connections also were really enlightening to yeah. me. I remember as I was reading it, before she even mentioned the song, it's the, uh, um, the song about marching in the Lord's army that you learn as a child, at yeah. least if you're growing up in the 90s like I did. And I can remember going to Mexico and, and at our VBS in Mexico that my church would do, we would sing the song in Spanish. Um, I will never march in the infantry, ride in the, or in the, what is Calvary. it? The cavalry, shoot the alt, 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 artillery, yeah. but I'm in the Lord's army or whatever it was. We sang that in Spanish and I didn't really thought about how crazy that sound sounded. Uh, the, just the pure militarism of, of, of evangelical Christianity. And you can even look at our own denomination. This sort of explains to me a little bit um, why we have the Calvinist Cadet Corps or why we have the Calvinettes. Um, it's sort of like I have the Boy Scouts. And hmm. I'm, I'm not in any way condemning cadets and, and gems. I think those, those are great ministries. Uh, it's just interesting to me that, that there are these sorts of... Uh, regimentized children's ministries that you wear badges and you have little outfits and mm. you go and you learn survival skills and and things like this which all those things can be great and yeah. there's not really any problem with that it was just interesting i'd never really thought about how that became so commonplace in the evangelical church i grew up doing awana which is very much the same thing as cadets or, or gems. Well, I think they were developed as an alternative to uh, mm. the, Boy Scouts. The, the Boy Scouts, the secular. Yeah. And so you had to uh, do those things from a, a <laughs> supposedly Calvinist point of view or right. biblical point of view. Uh, that, and that's I recall. That's when it started. I know when it started. Uh, <laughs> they were used to. They were boys clubs, mm-hmm. and the, the the it was changed to the cadet core idea because the Boy Scouts are very popular. Yeah, that uh, the point about militarism gets to my my second and my main uh, uh, appreciation of the book is the how evangelicals uh, really. I mean, let's be honest, all Christians have a temptation towards some kind of idolatry. And it seems as though uh, evangelicals of what some would call the religious right, even though I don't really like that term. Uh, have a very strong temptation and pull towards political idolatry. And um, when wrapped up with militarism, um, that that becomes very problematic. And yeah. so I think the, uh, the secular world has a political idolatry. I mean, really in America today, political idolatry is rampant it's it's hmm. uh it's everywhere yeah. and evangelicals are not spared from that temptation and this this really shows 
that quite powerfully. I, I think of um, um, a good example, would, not to harp too much on James Dobson, but the, uh, the quote that he made of Donald Trump being a baby Christian. And so um, I, don't, I don't know if that was included in the book or not. It was. It was. Um, but uh, when, when he said that, um, you know, Donald Trump has made many statements about what he believes a Christian to be, and I've never heard a legitimate statement of, about um, mm-hmm. faith in Christ, submission to his will, love for the Bible, things like that. Um, and uh, and so it, it seemed as though James Dobson was saying that because what was most important in that moment was a political win. Yeah, it was politically expedient. Yeah, and so um, that, of course, uh, is just not not true or not helpful by all mm-hmm. accounts that we can see. Um, it does not look like Trump is a, a, a strong Christian man who mm-hmm. who we want to sort of claim is a, a Christian man leading mm-hmm. as a, a, a Christian in, in culture. And, and so it seems as though in that moment, and there are other examples of this in the book, po- politics ascended above truth, maybe even. Um, so I, I think that was kind mm-hmm. of helpful. And that, that's where she begins the book, if I recall. Mm. Yeah, uh, but with him at Dort University. Within the Dort, yep, the yep. thing where he said he could shoot somebody in Times Square and his followers would not object or something like that. I could get away with it, basically. Right. Yeah. And so that was done in a, you can't find much more of a evangelical place than Dort, I would think. Uh, and so that, that was the big deal for her mm. being a graduate of Dort mm-hmm. <laughs> and having and seeing that and being involved in all the religious things which she thought were evangelical to, to hear that I think that's where it started yeah, yeah. that's how she starts a book anyway I don't know mm. if that really happened that way mm. that it did happen but I don't know if suddenly she had a bright moment <laughs> yeah yeah that was the light bulb moment maybe no yeah. i don't think yeah. so i think it was what this has gone on for some time yeah study and so um now shifting i mean it, it, we don't want to this to seem like oh well we got the good stuff out of the way now we can really slam her and now we have the expose <laughs> of Kristen cobes dumay here and it, she, she seems no. like in interviews like a uh thoughtful a very intelligent um sincere uh, believer and so um, these uh, these criticisms of the book are, are not really meant to to slam her as a person but but I do and, and I know Zach does as well have some pretty significant concerns with the book I, I think it still would be worth reading it's an interesting read um, and so we're not going to be book burners um, and tell people they're not allowed to read it but um, <laughs> but at the same time I think that overall uh, Overall, I would say it felt to me less helpful than than more helpful, um, and so I would agree. Uh, what what would you say, Zach, is is one of your main criticisms of it? Yeah, so like I said earlier, it didn't feel compelling for me to change any of my positions on things, and some of the reasons for that is that it seems to me as though she sees the world in sort of the reverse opposite that a fundamentalist would see the world. Um, and so she sees that there are essentially two sides. There's either the fundamentalist side or there's the progressive side. Um, and so she's obviously critiquing the fundamentalist side of white evangelicalism and advocating for her own position, which would be more on the progressive side. I don't think she's an out and out progressive, um, I don't think she'd be at Calvin University if that were the case, but uh, 
I know that she has teamed up and done a lot of things with sort of the ex-evangelical camp or the progressive evangelical camp. Um, that sort of seems to be a little bit of her tribe. And so she sees the, the evangelical landscape with this dichotomy. This is my read, at it's least. It's pretty monolithic. And so, yeah, so she's critiquing one side and essentially trying to galvanize support for her own side. Um, and so I, I think that... What I was feeling was that she lacked a dexterity with the real broad sweep and the diversity, you could say, of the evangelical tradition in America. Um, and so while she critiques lots of evangelicals and complementarians, um, and she even critiques some reformed, Doug Wilson, Mark Triscoll, John Piper, John Piper those are yeah. the three reformed guys that she really... Harps on, and Wayne Grudem falls under that a little mm-hmm. bit when she gets into the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just constantly kept feeling like I was getting frustrated with her not bringing up some of the actually more thoughtful leaders of the evangelical world in the 20th and 21st centuries, guys like a John Stott or um, or a Carl Henry or a J.I. Packer or Carl Truman or. Peter Lightheart and and others. Alistair Roberts is a more recent voice that I would have I would love for her to interact with. And I realize that this book is not a theological book, <laughs> so that would have caused the book to be a yeah. thousand pages yeah. instead of the three fifty that it was. And so that, that's maybe a little bit unfair for me to ask, but. Uh, it felt like she was doing a historical telling of a story, and b- through the history, she's trying to actually make you feel compelled to, ch- to change your theology. Um, I just kept wishing that she had actually dealt with the theology, because a lot of the mm. book does come off as a critique um, against complementarianism. Um, and so she, I think she rightly critiques some complementarians, like the CBMW, which I, I've read a lot of the work that's come out of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and some of it's helpful, some of it I really am not helped by. And the problems with their Trinitarianism, as she points out in the book, are quite clear and problematic. Um, but I'm not, there's, there's actually better complementarians than than people who are super involved yeah. with, with that uh, organization. Would be another one. Right. There, there's really thoughtful complementarians that have a much more nuanced view than, than often what goes under the banner of complementarianism. And so while I think she does rightly point out some of the flaws in, in that wing of complementarianism, I felt like she didn't, cha- again, didn't change my opinions at all. Yeah, there... Um there's a flattening of evangelicalism for sure. Um, and uh, there's an example where in the book she, she says, these, these are people who are listening to Pat Robertson and John Piper. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, to put those two names yeah, next yeah. to each other um, is... Yeah, that was really eye-opening. actually shocking. Uh, to me, it's... Uh, they're, they're worlds apart. Uh, These two people are worlds apart. I think that's the quote, and that quote, she said, they're listening to those people instead of their pastors. Mm-hmm. I remember the quote right. Yeah. and There's truth to that. So that's so, true. So that's that true. true. But, that's historically but, true. But I think to, to equate them. I don't think she was equating them. Well, hmm. she was just getting, she was, I think there were about five people on yeah, that list. Yeah, I think I want to say. And they were from various. Yeah. But sundry views, but she, her point was that there's there's this thing that cuts across, yeah, uh, which are unifying uh, themes 
<laughs> say. Well, and, and that people are listening to those rather than to their preachers out the pulpit. Well, and, and so like obviously to my earlier point that of the hero worship, that could be an issue, but I, I do think that she flattens those mm-hmm. down to kind of all of the same tribe. Um, and again, to refer to the interview that I, I did see, uh, she mentions yeah. Driscoll and Piper right together. And again, very, very yeah. different. Yeah. Um, they, yeah. they do share some theology. And, and that, share, because Piper came to Driscoll's defense, that's where she gets that. Uh, I actually, don't I don't think he did when everything was falling apart. Yeah. I, I think he was actually very honest about the disaster of John Piper. And she hmm. does mention an interview that, that Piper uh, gives when he's talking about the, the disaster of Mark Driscoll. But if she wants to be fair, my John Piper wrote um, a very critical article of Donald Trump right before the election. And so hmm. I think that you can't just say, oh, well, yeah, maybe he just got it, got it right this one time. I think that that does make him categorically different and than, say, Pat Robertson, certainly, but all, all of the other sort of complementarian gurus that you might, um, that, that she criticizes. So I, I, in that flattening, um, I think that it's actually unhelpful. And I, I, I felt like, uh, I agree with your point, Zach, that uh, as a complementarian minister, um, our churches would, would, we would be considered evangelical, I would guess, um, although I would definitely prefer to be referred to as reformed. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of delineation points and in even increasing distance between the evangelical subculture in America and what a reformed Christian should believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say we are generally evangelical if you want to go with the traditional definition. And um, I, I think that there are... Uh, it's a more complicated community, hmm. even in our own church, than uh, than this more monolithic thing that is presented there. For example, um, she talks a lot about Islamophobia and uh, and hmm. how uh, genders are are just given these very clear roles uh, in a lot of evangelical writing. Um, women stay at home, the men go to work, men go to war, women do the cooking and cleaning and things like that, and. Uh, again in that interview um, I don't want to get maybe too much into that but I think it's helpful for understanding the book uh, she talks about how the the remedy to that is to, to see Jesus as our example and to look to the Beatitudes and the um, mm-hmm. the, uh, the fruit of the spirit and, and things of that nature and I think that that is, is generally quite true but to also recognize the difference between men and women is a biblical concept um, and I, I think that I don't think that that means that you have to go and say, women, you go or men, you go read wild at heart. Women, you go <laughs> learn how to cook. Um, that's a kind of a hyperbolic example, although it is a prevalent one. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say even in our own church culture, I'll give it maybe an example. I preached on gender uh, two or three years ago, and I used a Venn diagram in that sermon, uh, basically saying, some evangelicals or, or some people in our world will, will have the Venn diagram as two separate circles. Men are so different than women. Mm-hmm. Every cell in your body is different than, um, than a woman, you know, and ne'er the twain shall meet because we're so different. Um, but then the opposite error is to have 
the two circles absolutely over overlapping. Mm-hmm. If you ma- imagine a blue circle for men and a red circle for women, the circle is just a purple circle and there's no difference. And yeah. I think that that is what a, good... a hyper egalitarianism wants to teach that there really is no fundamental difference between men and women. And, um, uh, I don't think that that's actually biblical. So, um, in, in my message, I said, there is a, there is an edge, uh, where you see that men are different and men are, have a different calling in some spheres than women do. And then women, you know, are, are obviously have some, some differences as well. And so, uh, I, I want to say it's more nuanced in maybe particularly a reformed evangelical church than in what uh, what she presents in maybe some some more other denominational contexts. Although maybe I have mm-hmm. rose tinted glasses and you're, you're and, too theological. You're a preacher. <laughs> He's a preacher, and she's a historian. Yeah. And so she defines what she wants to do, yeah. and she does it. Yeah. And that's where it comes out in the, uh, the subtitle that you read earlier. Sure. Uh, it's not her job to go into that balance. I would might do it if I was teaching in, uh, uh, a course on Christian history. I would say, well, I might do that. Uh, but this is a narrower kind of a thing, and it's not her job to say, oh, well, this, this Reformed guy is not like right. sure. but Driscoll. And th- this type of uh, evangelical, the only thing she does, she does, uh, and I didn't think she had done that before. Uh, when I read it before, uh, she does distinguish when she's writing anyway between fundamentalist and evangelical. Mm. Uh, I saw them all just running together, but she does. She has yeah. more. It's more nuanced than that. Hmm. Uh, Didn't but, you think though that uh, in talking about like the promise keepers and and um, to bring Piper up again, it's like really they are more nuanced but underneath that's still this sinister kind of um uh patriarchy incorrect patriarchy yeah like that, that yeah. that's how that read to me and so even where there's nuance oh but but we really know what they're what they're trying they're to they're really get up at. to it's and, like a trojan horse sort yeah of, sort and of um i think it was maybe called soft patriarchy in in the interview actually that she just gave um and so that's what i mean by that flattening ron i I think that when when promise keepers uh, is just flattened to be Hmm. like a soft uh kind of uh i i don't want to defend promise keepers to my dying day but i think it was (laughs) it was like uh it was an honest attempt at helping men become good fathers and uh, hmm. worship the Lord, become committed to their faith, being a part of their church. Um, and where modern feminist historians want to look back and make it something that was way more toxic and mm-hmm. dangerous and things like that. And I don't think it ended up uh, being that way. I looked at that chapter again and I see, I saw her starting out with a soft patriarchy, then a movement towards a more militaristic uh, sure, they sort had of writings. And, yeah. and then, at, but at the end, she comes back to, uh, it was a much more balanced uh, than it had become. I don't know anything about promise keepers, except I got a lot of relatives, have a lot of relatives who, who went, went mm-hmm. to the meetings. Uh, 
But I thought she was quite sympathetic. I, I don't does she. I don't think she comes back in there and to say this is still patriarchy. Uh, hmm. I'd have to check the chapter yeah. again. Uh, Maybe I'm confusing in the interview with no, the book a little bit. Because okay, I think she called it a soft patriarchy. Yeah, that's what, that's what she used. Yeah, in the beginning of that chapter. Yeah, and then, but I I thought there was a change to something else, and then it coming back. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I have so, to go but, back and look at it. But it's that flattening that I, I just want to guard against that. It's it is a very nuanced and um, like a culture. It, it's different. Um, and even another example of that would be why did people vote for Trump? Right. Mm -hmm. That's a very complicated question. And I think many uncharitable left leaning people say, they voted for him because there's racism and there's the power grab and um, mm -hmm. people were fearful, uh, you know, yeah. and it's it's like immediately ascribing a sinister motive to all those. Yeah. That's true percent. for a lot of people yeah. who voted for Trump, yeah. I'm sure. I don't and know so how we would determine that. That but can be very true. Yeah. But that's not most people I know who voted for Trump. Sure. Who are abortion. That was yeah. Right. Abortion. Uh, Supreme Court judges. Uh, maybe some immigration stuff that uh, that mm -hmm. people wanted to see a more uh, certain issue tr China trade agreement like certain things like that that he was hitting on a lot and okay. I'm not even but again, that's I'm when she, she does get to that she does get to that 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 was the support had come from people who were mm -hmm. against abortion mm -hmm. who were against uh, immigration who were uh, wanted? I mean, she does get to that. She's not dwelling on that at all, which might be a, a, a weakness. But she, she said that's why these evangelicals. He's, that's the point. They're they're supporting the, the how they voted yep. by hmm. for all these various reasons, uh, without doing it in a uh, would say an, a, an overt way. But, but it's all there. But don't you think the point of the book is to say? It actually wasn't those policies, but it was this machismo, this masculinity. Yeah, right. It, that, that's yeah. the part of the point of the book, which I hmm. agree is the appeal of a guy like Trump for a lot of people. But it's way more complex in evangelical. I, I think the machismo turned a lot of people off and they had they held their nose when they went into the voting booth and mm -hmm. and so forth. And, and so. Um, you know, calling saying white evangelicals corrupted a nation because of this desire for machismo and yeah. masculinity and then that is the whole reason for yeah. Trump getting elected. No, they corrupted the faith. Okay. Is that and they then they fractured, fractured the nation. The nation yeah. Right. Which I think is probably from a evangelical I would consider myself evangelical in the or, or original sense of the word. Mm -hmm. And I would definitely refer reformed nowadays because evangelical is what the pundits have picked up and mm -hmm. run with. Mm -hmm. Um but um she, there's a theology behind her, what she's doing too. Mm. That is, a faith is corrupted. When you turn to John Wayne, mm -hmm. when you turn to militarism, yeah. when you turn to a, a great, uh, uh, which is uh, a great emphasis on maleness yeah. being uh, good and high testosterone and whatever, uh, and as opposed to what Jesus was. Hmm. Uh, so I think that's yeah. She's dealing with the faith and how it was corrupted. Hmm. And the people. Have, trouble is, the people who are corrupting it are supposed to be uh, promoting it. Hmm. 
Mm. And that's what I think has happened. These guys were into something other than the faith because they weren't being good ministers like you are. Mm. They're being, they're getting for political power. Sure, the idolatry. That group group in there, there's a Netflix uh, documentary on the family. Oh yeah, I saw that. And last year, I think it came out. It's really interesting yeah. uh, seeing how the, the, the re- so-called religious aspect of politics or the politicians are dwelling on the, this religious. It's a f- cult mm. in a way, mm-hmm. uh, and it's, this cult is in the uh, House of Representatives. Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah, that was an interesting documentary. It, sometimes I did wonder. Is Netflix telling this the right way? <laughs> but there are some things you can't deny that sounded a little bit spurious or, or more than that. So um, would do you have any other... Uh, yeah, so one of my issues with the way that she does this, it sounds like to me as I read through this book that she has a lot of deeply formed theological positions, particularly on, on sexuality and gender, and that those, are, those only implicitly come forth as she tells this historical story. And the whole point, it seems to me, is to have a, at the end of the day sort of a gotcha conclusion. Gotcha, complementarianism is wrong. Now you can't deny it because I've marshaled so much good evidence. And so it, it would sort of be akin to me going and studying history, becoming a historian, and being a complementarian, writing a book about all the evils that have been perpetrated by egalitarian female pastors, uh, whether it's doctrinal or whether it's something else. I could, I pretty clearly could go do this. I could talk about women like Paula White. I could talk about women like Joyce Meyer. I could talk about women like Catherine Jeffers Shorey of the Bolt's Episcopal Weber. Church. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nadia Bolts Weber. I could marshal a lot of evidence. I'm sure when I could probably write a book this length mm. um, and say boom gotcha now you can all see it's it's now an open and full display the evils of egalitarian feminism yeah, and we've traced it back to um, egalitarian and you can't position. deny it yep. um, I think what somebody would be left wanting to do who disagreed with my my position would say I would love to see your theological positions actually in a more clear way I would love to see you work out exegetically and theologically I know she's not a theologian yeah. but this is a theological book. Whether whether or not we would we would say it's a theological book, we may read on the back on the, near the ISBN that it's a historical book of Christian religious history. But there's definitely theological motivations here that I would love for her to interact with a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so that's that would be that would be a critique. I know that the book would be longer. It wouldn't be as popular level of a book, but I think it would be more truthful in that sense and it would be more honest and therefore perhaps more compelling for me mm-hmm. to change my positions yeah there's um it is a a telling of history from a certain uh theological perspective and I, every telling of history is yeah um and uh to simply say this is history and not theology to me is is not it's a little disingenuous. Yeah, it yeah seems. it's actually not very fair because many of the <laughs> the, the presuppositions are uh, theological in nature, obviously, um, and so I think that that's a fair criticism. And um, maybe in in the interview that she just gave, she did say that some was taken out by the editor, and so I, I want to say some of that was maybe in the more theological. Yes, arena. it would have been probably. Um, but uh, even still, 
to just simply say, well, I'm a historian, so I don't get into theology wherever that's kind of convenient. And um, that's it is a very theological book. Wouldn't you say so, Ron? I mean, it, it's a telling of history. Well, yeah, because you got all the, all, it's about all these religious guys. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. But, so it has to be about religion. I don't think about it, theology. Mm. It is about hmm. terms which are related to theology, like patriarchy. Mm-hmm. That, that, that term is probably the most widely used. Uh, it always comes down to patriarchy. And so what she means by that usually is something bad. Uh, so she's not doing the, the third point of the sermon type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> or the first point, maybe there's, a, there's this view, there's that view, there's the next view of this. <laughs> sure. uh, she's writing the first book, which put all of these things together. Now, I suppose there, there are going to be critiques. Um, but academically, it's going to be difficult to critique her because of all the evidence she has. But it'd be along the lines, your lines, uh, theological lines. So there is theology yeah. which is implied, mm-hmm. and she's talking about the faith being corrupted. So obviously, it has to be something sure. about theology. Sure. Uh, but that's not her job. I don't think her job to uh, do a sermonette. Yeah. Is that what a female would do? Sermonette. <laughs> well, and so, so like some people might criticize one of my sermons and say, you didn't say everything. Right. Yeah. You know, and that's not totally. very fair. Right. Yeah. So, but I think, yeah. uh, Josh, you're, Zach, you're, you're, your criticism is deeper than that. Yeah. It's not that it's just not fair, but it's... Yeah. Uh, you can't just turn it's that misleading. Off and off. It's I misleading. feel like she's theologically motivated. That's that's all. Yeah. Uh, that's my observation well, from reading the book. She's a Calvinist. Yeah, she's a Calvinist. She she is also a feminist. She said that she's made that clear multiple times, not just in the book yeah. but outside of it. And so, I would love to have her put on her theologian hat. I think we can safely say every Christian's a theologian in some sense, even the. The, the child, even the five-year-old, we all know theology and we're accountable to know good theology and to wrestle with scripture and to try to understand it as best we can. And so yeah. I know that's, that's not her academic That's not field. her job. And but so, her job is to tell the truth. Her calling is to tell the truth. Now, if she hasn't told the truth or she's misled us, then you've got a problem. Uh, she has a problem. Hmm. I don't think she's misled us. I do in this sense. Okay. The the sort of the, the thesis that mil, the militarism of that that is often seen in in sermons for example or in literature that was sort of a concoction of 20th century evangelicalism. And if we just get back to Jesus then then that that militarism will will sort of vanish away. I think that 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 is not accurate at all um, because the Bible includes the Bible has a recognition that we are in spiritual warfare I mean there you have the armor of God passage um, Ephesians you have 6. even something like Jesus saying the thief comes to steal kill and destroy I have come that you may have life and have it to the full and so that even that is, is not like militaristic necessarily but it's life or death situation and then you have of course uh one of the first things God has called is a warrior in, uh, in Exodus after the, um, after the, the crossing of the Red Sea. The Lord is a warrior. He fought for us. The horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. Hmm. And so 
there is a recognition all throughout scripture of spiritual warfare. And I think that she sort of wants to chalk that up to machismo. We, we should get rid of that. We should be um, maybe softer, kinder in the... We should really the, emphasize the parts of scripture like the Beatitudes. Beatitudes and fruit of the spirit, which is great. I, I agree that, of course, I just preached a whole series on the fruit of the spirit. And in ev- just about every single one, I said, each fruit is for men and women to, yeah. to fulfill and to, to see. And, and yet... I think that there is a lot of very serious spiritual warfare language in scripture that, um, spiritual, it is spiritual. It's been misused throughout history by Christians. Hmm. The crusades was the best example. Religious wars, another example of the 17th century. I mean, right. And turning, turning, you know, turning the, the state, the idea of God fighting, Evil has been misused throughout Christian history hmm. uh, because it's been misused. Sure, I don't think that's the point of the. It's the point of is a spiritual battle against evil. It's not you go out and armor, get good armor on. But that's a metaphor. Isn't one of the the points of the book to convince you that 20th century evangelicalism is like uniquely militarized? You know what I mean? Like, and. Uh, and, and perhaps it is because of our American military industrial complex to a certain extent. And that, that is something that should be challenged. But um, I, I don't think, I think there are still those passages in scripture hmm. that, that must be recognized as spiritually militaristic. Spiritually, yes. Yeah. I think she would agree with that. And her spiritual no, militarism. Oh, I think she would. Uh, in the interview that I just watched, I don't think she would agree. Now it would be fun all. to have to have yeah. her call it up and we could ask her yeah. herself. It, yeah. The, and basically, we, we need to get to Jesus as sort of a red-letter Christian uh, Christianity, um, and mm. which she, she used that term in the interview. And, and so, again, I think that that informs the historiography a lot. Part of the difficulty lot. here, too, is that Mark and I, we have both watched this interview, and Ron, you've not yeah, had the opportunity to. True. So it's kind of a little bit unfair if we if we read everything through just the video lens because that's not on the table for us all. I'm not, not trying yeah, to... But I think it, it, it helps us understand yeah. where the points are being made from. Like, again, again the... True, I agree Doing with away you. with militaristic language altogether being a goal. And so I'm going to find all these cases yeah. where militaristic language was used... And basically say, well, we shouldn't just shouldn't do that anymore. Yeah. Um, I think that that is, again, you can't just take the historiographer or the history hat off and on quite so conveniently. Um, I, I think that that's probably one of the issues with with the the book overall. Yeah, but when she's using that evidence of the military, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not the spiritual warfare. <laughs> it's hey, bu- buckle up, buddy. Isn't it even in the army some spiritual like um, we we want to be good soldiers with with character and virtue, you know what I mean? Like when it's when the the training I I agree that the training probably shouldn't have been given, but I don't think it's quite as clear as like we're the Lord's soldiers to go and fight the Hun or something like that. Um, I, I think that at times that can yeah, actually I, be used I, well. You know what I mean? Like to to build character. Yeah, learn how to shoot. <laughs> learn how to, you know. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, the idea might be to build character. 
<laughs> that character is going to do something very physical yeah. eventually. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, you're quite right. She's emphasizing Jesus of the Beatitudes mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, being crucified and being um, tempted and resisting it. Sure. And those sorts of things. Um, well, I'm but, right there with her on all that. I think yeah. we should really emphasize the cruciform life of the Christian. Um, Philippians 2 should loom large for, for most Christians. And we talk, talk about how to live your life, serve others, follow Christ to the grave, die to yourself, right. pick up your cross, follow him. Um, don't, don't retaliate. God seeks vengeance. So you don't need to. Um, that sort of stuff is there. But I think if we talk about spiritual warfare, what does it mean? To, what does spiritual warfare mean? It must mean that there is a threat and that we should yeah. be on guard. And the threat is not against flesh and blood. It's principalities and powers. True. But could it, could it be true that we need to be on guard against what's going on in our culture, the zeitgeist, the sort of hmm. spiritual movements that take place in our world that happen in culture and in nations, uh, should Christians be militarized spiritually against those things? Yes. That's what she's doing. But what does that look like? She's doing that. See, that's why she says corrupted of faith. I mean, that that involves a very aggressive notion. Whether she gets, she makes it or not hmm. is another question because what the, 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 the question becomes, well, how are you going to prove this? And you, if you prove it by just constantly referring to patriarchy mm-hmm. I don't think you know to me mm-hmm. that it has to be there has to be more to it mm-hmm. and I guess maybe that's what you're getting at too but uh, still it's not I don't think it's their job to go into all the theological ramifications yeah. of evangelicalism one of the big things too that I, I had written down as I was thinking about all this and this sort of was related to our discussion here is what is the zeitgeist that Christians are to fight what is the zeitgeist yeah. characterized? Is is the world out there, so to speak, in quotes, the world out there, uh, mostly conservative in that it's patriarchal, it's racist, it's it's corrupt, there's power imbalances and injustice everywhere? That's how a progressive person would see it, and that's I would take that that's how... Uh, that's Jude how the Canons of it. Dort sees it. Um, <laughs> we could debate that. <laughs> um, or is it... <laughs> or is or is the world out there mostly progressive? You know, you turn on Netflix, and a lot of Netflix movies are pretty progressive. Or if you watch if you watch the show Glee, um, all the the conversations that take place are about how Christians are so spiteful and mean, and how everybody should be more loving towards LGBT people. Or um, yeah, you you see you see. Yeah. You turn on TV and you watch sports now, and sports are even politicized. And there's there's messages that conservatives feel like are being shoved down their throats. So depending on how we see the world, quote, out there, that will inform how we, how militarized and what our militarized actions look like spiritually. And so if we're Christians on the left, like Dumais, when we see the world as more conservative, we will then say Christian warfare, spiritual warfare should look like dismantling patriarchy. And if we are Christians on the right and we see the world as progressive out there, then spiritual warfare means, you know, having a strong home and having a strong understanding of, of how men and women are to interrelate and how uh, we are to be good people and have strong families and strong communities or whatever it may be. We should be against abortion. 
Mm-hmm. I would say there's truth in both ways of seeing the world. The world is one at the same time, mm-hmm. is at one at the same time, both very progressive yeah. and very conservative, depending on how you slice it. And so Christian spiritual warfare should be on guard against injustice, racism, sexual abuse, uh, and things like of that nature. And we should be a, a, on guard um, against abortion, against uh, sexual immorality, changing yeah views of sexual immorality, um, and things like that. All of that is what Christians should be on guard for. And spiritual warfare should therefore look like following Christ and being able to call it yeah. call it all sin, call it all problem, and to fight against it. Um, so we shouldn't just be picking our political side and then fighting the political enemies, thinking that our political side is the Christian side. We should be able to to see ourselves as citizens of a of a alternate kingdom, mm. the kingdom of Christ, and that means we're going to see sin in both ways and we're not going to be blinded to the sins of our own side yeah, yeah. this is like the Truman Carl Truman's quote where he says yeah. um, what do you, how, yeah. you, you you know the quote he better said, than I do uh, you said it earlier for, for liberals racism is the only sin that exists for conservatives it's the only sin that doesn't exist yes yeah, so we have these blinders on yep. what we need to do and that's racism but we could say the same thing about power imbalance or yeah something like that yeah. yeah and so we have to open ourselves up to the idea that the world is not just progressive. A lot of Christians, conservative Christians do this. They see the world out there is just, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. It's progressive and it will, it's just going to get more and more progressive. Progressives say that the world is sort of eternally conservative and we will not stop marching against injustice because it's, we, we can only ever see it like this. I think it's actually more complex than, than both of the ways those two well, groups just, see the world. I think you just did it. <laughs> well, <laughs> you just summarized in the same way that you're criticizing her for. No, you no. just you think you've summarized the progressive view, and you've su- summarized it in a few words. And you, sure. can pre- you can do a sermon on that, and then you got to do a sermon. Mm. So you also have to do a sermon on then on the conservative side. Yeah, but I don't think that happens. With, with you got a book, you're going to do a certain things in a book, and you're not writing ten volumes of this mm. this phase of goodness about the evangelical movement, and this mm-hmm. phase about the evil, and, and this is what uh, Piper thinks, and this is what Keller thinks, mm. and this is what Thompson mm-hmm. thinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the, the, do you think, think that's more honest, though? Well, it's more complicated. It is. It is. It's honest in the sense of uh, trying to do a history of evangelicalism, mm-hmm. which you could. Pro- which this is not. Sure. It's uh, not. It, it but it's not when you're doing a history of what happened, the development of a, a certain branch, what I would call it, of evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. It wasn't my branch uh, over the past fifty years. That's what she's doing. And I don't think she has to do more than that, though it would be nice to have her do more. I don't think that's her job. Uh, Yeah, she would have to write more books. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, And when you read, like, Marsden's History of Fundamentalism, that gets, you you see all the phases and the variety Mm -hmm. in fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't... She's she's not doing that kind of a book. Um, 
And that's why I say at the beginning when we were talking about things we appreciated, I think she nails it. If you're talking about a certain subset of evangelicalism, yeah, she gets the nail on the right. head. Right, yeah. And in that sense, it's a successful book. But I would call it fundamentalism in general. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's probably... And then there are varieties within fundamentalism. There's a, there is a Calvinist variety. That's where it started, sure, yeah. as a matter of fact. Uh, and it became a lot of other things along <laughs> the way. But... Uh, Again, that that's no, that's yep. not, that's that's not. I don't see her having to do what you guys want her to do, but because I think you're theologians, <laughs> and I'm just an old historian. I would see it more from an old-fashioned historian sort of a way of documentation. There's a lot of magazine articles hmm. cited, and uh, a lot of and, and, and not enough primary sources. But that's that's she's stuck with that. She's stuck with it because it's current, what mm-hmm. I call current history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and uh, maybe that is uh, a good place to start to wrap things up because um, <laughs> I, I do. I think that that's a good way of putting it, Ron. That um, as pastors, as we're sort of uh, low-level theological minds, I oh, guess man, yeah. um, <laughs> that uh, we do we do uh, want theology to be communicated well, and so. Um, part maybe my, my final little little criticism is what is the impact that the book realistically will have when yeah, it, when somebody picks point. this book up if I'm going to a Christian bookstore and I'm a 25 year old recent college grad who is a little bit discouraged by my evangelical church and I pick this book up I, I think that um, it will it will have the impact of opening their eyes uh, to some really disastrous things from evangelical history, which is a good thing, right? So mm-hmm. we're not going to be the, the 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 silencing group. That's not really where I would want to go with it. But um, it proposes implicitly the the solution as the deconstruction of complementarianism and um, uh, any militaristic language. Uh, even even if you maybe were to find some in the Bible, um, mm-hmm. and to me that's the impact realistically that it's going to have, and I think that that is generally unhelpful, of course, because I'm a complementarian myself, and so I would think that way. But um, j- just thinking realistically about what it would most likely yield um, is kind of a hypercritical, maybe even cynical attitude towards. All things evangelical, even if some evangelicals could would be able to nuance their view. No, you're just complicit. That's one of the favorite word of uh, such types of mm. histories uh, in the last five years. You're complicit in the whole system, yeah. even if you can nuance your your idea. I think that's a what you say too is also very much you're showing your millennial generation views. I think as pastors, we're sensitive to millennials mm. picking up this book, mm. uh, whereas person yep. of a baby boomer generation would have would just say hey, yeah that's what i was well, naming a, a lot of things that i saw yeah. yeah yeah um so yeah i could see a 25 year old just got out of college and they're pretty skeptical of their own faith and they're sort of wrestling through it this book could probably push them away from faith um or it may just open their eyes it could have a whole lot of different impacts or i could see it on the reverse side a mm. 20 25 year old very conservative 
Trump supporter <laughs> reading this book and getting even more enraged. Yeah, there are some of those reviews. <laughs> and that's not that the fault of the yeah. book yeah. Um, necessarily. Right. Um, that's the, that's the fault of that person. But what would you say would be how do how do you think the impact of this book will will be received? All I know is that it has had a great impact. Yeah. Uh, in the evangelical world, and it's had. Here we are. So maybe, <laughs> maybe they'll all come to this CRC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a more careful theological institute. Maybe. I, mean, that, that. I think that was, there's a rather famous woman whose name I don't know from the Baptist. Uh, oh, Beth Moore. Yeah. She was very much influenced by this book. Yeah. From what yeah. I read. I, it actually, hmm. when she tweeted about the book is when it took off into the strategy. Oh, is it? Uh, yeah. yeah. So where, where is she going, you know? Yeah, well, that's uh, a great to question, Ron. I, I think the most likely thing with our current zeitgeist is to say nuts to the whole Christian thing. I'm I'm gonna just sort of do religion. I don't, I don't think so. She's you been, don't think that that would be the the unintentional impact of the book? Oh no, no, not if you're careful. Not if you're thinking. You're gonna say this is not what I want to have yeah. deal with. I want to find something much more meaningful more robust yeah. i'll go to calvin university <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i, I guess there's a pitch for it. The, the possible uh response but uh, that is interesting to hear the two perspectives for sure yeah and again i don't i don't want to tell any person out of fear stay away from right. this book because it's going to tell you some really bad things about evangelicalism i think what she lists are obviously well-documented, huge problems in evangelical culture yeah. that uh, hopefully we as Reformed ministers uh, and uh, Reformed Church can offer help, not just saying, therefore, the solution is to deconstruct uh you know everything that even looks a little bit like this, yeah. uh, but to say, let's get to Scripture, all of Scripture, not just Jesus' life, which is, yeah. of course, central, but all of scripture and uh, we'll develop a better theology than what has got us and maybe yeah. what has gotten some Christians into tr uh, problem, trouble in the past. So Yeah, amen to that. And I just want to again say thank you to yes. Ron. Thank it's you, been Ron. a lot of fun and it wouldn't have been the episode that it will be <laughs> without you. So yeah. it's been yeah. really, really awesome. Right. Thank you for, for the, good, the good insight and uh, thank you for listening, everyone. It's been a longer episode, but uh, hopefully... Uh, it was spicy enough to, <laughs> to carry you along, um, and uh, we'll uh, hopefully uh, be able to continue these and, and uh, blessing you with uh, some stimulating conversation, but uh, yeah. really our goal is to edify your faith, and so, um, so have a good rest of your week. Yep. Like, share, comment, subscribe, all of that. Grace and peace, you guys.